But we start today's show with the very latest on the White Rock Lake wildfire. We've been hearing on the news several buildings have been destroyed. With the very latest on that, we are joined by Ken Gillis with the Thompson-Nicola Regional District. Ken, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us today. Hi, and thank you for having me. What is the latest with what's happening with the White Rock Lake wildfire? Well, the latest is that it uh, jumped the highway on uh, Highway 97 in the Monty Lake area last night, and there was a considerable amount of destruction wrought on uh, on the Monty Lake community. We have been unable to get in to assess the full extent of that destruction uh, as yet today. We are hoping to get permission from BC Wildfire to get in there and have a look. The fire continued on up an area known as Paxton Valley, uh, and I'm waiting for an update from BC Wildfire as to just exactly how far it has progressed. But it certainly progressed far enough that we found it necessary to uh, issue evacuation orders for uh, for uh, Pritchard and Monty Creek. I think Monty Creek went first, and then Pr- Pritchard, we uh, issued an evacuation order last night, and people were up until 3 in the morning knocking on doors and Telling people to get out of the uh, to get out of that area. As far as you know, at this point, has everybody made it out okay? As far as I know, there have been no injuries or fatalities or anything like that. But uh, uh, you know, we just keep our fingers crossed that nothing bad happens. We have had some difficulty with people refusing to leave their property. Uh, in some cases, understandable if they're ranchers with livestock, but in other cases, uh, it's just people who seem to be reluctant to leave their possessions and so on when they are going to have to come to grips with the fact that it comes down to a choice perhaps between your possessions and your life so Hmm. we're worried about that are there people that are under this evacuation order then because of the white rock lake fire that are refusing to leave there have been yes and there was a problem with that uh, last night because people had to be pulled off the uh, off the uh, fire lines in order to rescue people who were suddenly stuck after having had, you know, 24 to 48 hours notice to get out. They stayed, and then at some point later they were unable to get out without assistance. So that uh, that caused some problems, and it's very, very frustrating for the incident uh, commander on that fire. Right, because you can imagine they're going to want to all all resources they can fighting the fire and not having to, to save people, which which would become the priority, but an unnecessary one if people follow the order. That's correct. Yeah, you've got it. Uh, do we know at this point how many structures have been destroyed? No, uh, and I won't know that until uh, we get the green light from BC Wildfire to send some people in and, and have a look at the, uh, at the situation. But uh, the number of structures uh, is going to be fairly substantial, I would think, because my understanding is that the fire tore through the pretty much the entire community of, of Monty Lake. And do you know offhand, and if you don't, that's fine, but do you know offhand how big the population of Monty Lake is? Yeah, I, I'm estimating around 125. Okay. And, and you mentioned livestock and people, because we have seen, and we've certainly talked to people on this program before as well, who have stayed behind, uh, whether it was the ostrich farmers or others with livestock. Uh, do we know at this point the losses as far as livestock or if there was livestock in the path of this fire? No, I don't have any information on that. And I, I suspect that's 
probably because it's incalculable. And the livestock here are often out on the range, and uh, that fire moved so quickly that it could very easily have uh, have overtaken them. Uh, we may not have an answer to that question until October, when when the ranchers find out how many cattle actually don't show up. Uh, I know that they're out on the range trying to bring them in, but how many they were able to drive into a safe area, I have no idea. And it's inevitable that we've lost a lot. Uh, looking at the the wildfire, the BC Wildfire Service page, it's now estimating the White Rock Lake fire at 45,000 hectares, which is almost impossible to try and picture when we're thinking about some of the other major fires we've been talking about this season at around 6,000 hectares. That's just such a large area. Uh, how how would you describe the, the fire that we're dealing with right now? Well, it's terrifying, Jill, to be honest with you. I, I had a look at it yesterday firsthand, and it's, uh, it's moving very, very aggressively. I was told by BC Wildfire that it moved... Uh, 18 kilometers in eight hours yesterday. So that's perhaps not unheard of for a fire of that size, but it's certainly uncommon for a fire to be moving that fast. And you can imagine if you were, you know, if you were 18 kilometers away and and somebody said you're on evacuation, you'd, you'd look and you'd think, well, I've got lots of time, but that's how fast this fire is moving. And that's why reacting to these evacuation orders is so vitally important. Uh, indeed, and we're going to talk about that a bit more later on in the program. At this point, I know that there are a lot of resources that are fighting this fire. Like you said, there's been devastation in those communities. Are there other fires right now of note in the Thompson-Nicola Regional District? Oh, certainly, yes. We've got the Toronto fire. We issued a further evacuation order uh, with respect to the Toronto fire last night. That's the one that's west of us here in the uh, in the Savannah area, and perhaps, and it uh, actually was closer at one point to Ashcroft, but it, it missed Ashcroft. But yeah, there's that one. There's the Sparks Lake fire north of Kamloops, which has been probably the biggest one in the province, and it has caused all kinds of trouble. The McKay Creek fire uh, over in the uh, um, Squamish Lillooet Regional District has moved into our regional district too, and it's caused havoc. So, yeah, there are many fires of note that are that are of serious concern to us right now. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the Sparks Lake fire, because, again, as uh, I was talking about the, the White Rock Lake being at 45,000 uh, hectares, uh, I think it, the latest information on Sparks Lake, it's currently at 77,000 hectares. So certainly a fire that I believe is still being classified as out of control. Yeah, I, I think that all of the ones that I mentioned are out of control. What message do you have then for people? Again, we're going to talk more about the fact when an evacuation order comes in, it, it means business. It means that, that they're not doing this lightly. There's a reason why they're, they're telling people you need to leave now. What else would you like to tell people in the region who are near or maybe don't think they are that near, but are in these areas where these wildfires are burning? Well, I would say please, please keep a very close eye on things. And if you are put under evacuation alert, it's time to get your things together, those precious things that you need to take. And uh, once that changes to an order, if it changes to an order, then move immediately. Get out before, uh, before the possibility arises that you might be trapped.
And as far as resources, are there enough resources at this point to, to respond to these fires? As like you said, with the White Rock Lake fire uh, moving quickly for a fire, uh, these other fires out of control, we've seen some firefighters coming in from other jurisdictions. Do we need more help to fight these fires? We certainly need more help, and we needed more help a month ago. Uh, a month ago, when the greatest number of fires uh, started sim- almost simultaneously, uh, the, the uh, BC wildfire people were simply um, prioritizing and saying, well, look, we'll deal with this one because it's close to that town, and we'll deal with another one because it's close to some other community. But this one's a way out in the wilderness so we won't bother with that and i think that's uh, maybe even what happened with the white rock lake fire that it was initially it wasn't threatening any any structures or any communities and by the time they found some resources to apply to it uh, it was out of control well, like you said, we're still we're still waiting to see uh, what devastation was left behind by that fire. Hopefully, everybody uh, is accounted for. We will leave it there for today. Ken Gillis, thank you so much. I know it's a very busy day for you, so thanks so much for coming on the program. And thank you very much for bringing light to the situation. All right, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth right now is addressing the wildfire situation and saying a direct plea to those who have stayed behind when evacuation orders are put in place because of wildfires. He made that plea to people saying, to those of you who think you know better than firefighters and professionals, you don't. And he is pleading with people to not ignore evacuation orders because when that happens, the escape routes can then be cut off. And what that means is professionals in some scenarios will have to be redeployed from fighting the fires to helping save people who have voluntarily stayed behind. Well, joining me now is Hannah Swift, Fire Information Officer with the BC Wildfire Service. Hannah, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Uh, Mike Farnworth is saying that, uh, just finished saying that right now uh, to people, again, saying you don't know more than fire crews and professionals. Orders are put in place for a reason. Is it happening very often that people are ignoring or defying the evacuation orders and staying behind? Yeah, so we are seeing that happen all across the province, um, except uh, kind of increased this year over last year's. Um, so on the White Rock Lake wildfire, we did see that happen yesterday in the afternoon into the evening. Um, our crews were unfortunately pulled away from actively suppressing the wildfire and actively protecting property um, and redirected to evacuate uh, people who were in the evacuation order areas who shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, so not only is it irresponsible and frustrating for us, it is it's very dangerous put our personnel in that kind of situation to have to go in and evacuate people who shouldn't be there in the first place. Um, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go ahead. Well, just, we were talking as well with Ken Gillis uh, with the Thompson-Nicola Regional District, and he talked about kind of the different reasons why people stay and, and saying on the one hand, well, you should always leave when there's an evacuation order. He, he understood there were scenarios where people had livestock that they were trying to save and making that decision to stay back and try and save the livestock. But I'm guessing, do you hear different reasons from people as to why it is they've decided to ignore the evacuation order? Well, I can I can understand that it's incredibly stressful and it's a very hard decision to have to leave your livelihood behind. Um, but these evacuation orders are in place for for, for their safety. Um, other reasons that people may not choose to leave is they they can't they can't see the flame front coming towards them yet. Uh, but we do have um, 
forward planning specialists and fire behavior analysts who are working around the clock to to predict and forecast where the fire growth might potentially happen based on forecast conditions. And and as was forecasted, we did have those southwest winds yesterday that were gusting upwards of 40, and the fire did progress northeast um, as we'd expected. And and that flame front comes really quickly, and it's a very volatile situation out there given the drought conditions. Um, So people need to be aware that, um, you know, we don't take these orders lightly. They're in place for a reason, and they're in place for for public safety, and that is our number one priority right now. How does it play out then when an evacuation order goes into place, people are told, you need to get out now. How do you or how does the the wildfire service then know who it is that has stayed behind? Well, so evacuation orders are implemented by regional districts or local governing authorities, and the local governing authority is the one who implements and carries out the evacuation order. So they will go around with RCMP and give ample notice and a time as to when those people need to be out of evacuation order areas. Um, after that time, there's no way for us to know whether or not you stay behind, and uh, BC Wildfire personnel are not responsible to go in and, and actually evacuate those people. However, um, you know, we are here to help people and, and we will do our best to get them out, but that won't always be feasible um, given conditions or egress routes. Um, people who choose to leave, leave behind may not be able to get out and we might not be able to go in to get them out. So I imagine then it, it comes down to a scenario where people have stayed behind. And like you said, the crews aren't aren't responsible for that. But obviously, if crews find out there's people, they're going to do whatever they can to try and save them. Is it then people who have stayed behind realize that either the road is blocked or the fire has moved a lot closer than they anticipated and it's them calling for help? Yes, absolutely. So things change very quickly and, and escape routes get compromised and heavy smoke can, can make people very disoriented. And as we saw yesterday on the White Rock Lake wildfire, um, Highway 97 was closed east of Falkland, Falkland to north of Monty Lake. And it was initially closed uh, because of heavy smoke in the area and for public safety. And, and just hours later, the, the fire did cross over the highway south of Monty Lake um, and continued to progress northeast. Um, and, and again, that that compromised an escape route, um, uh, the north escape route from that area. So, again, people need to leave while they while they have the time and as soon as they receive an evacuation order. I, I want to just play quickly one of the comments from Public Safety Minister uh, Mike Farnworth. Last sure. night, firefighters with the BC Wildfire Service once again put their lives on the line to help evacuate people who chose to ignore evacuation orders. A small group of people found themselves being overrun by the rapid advance of this fire. While our crews were able to get the residents to safety, these brave firefighters very nearly paid with their lives. This experience was traumatic for all involved and should never have happened. By any measure, this is completely unacceptable. Our crews need our support. You can hear the frustration in his voice there. Do you think it's a, a matter of, as well, people don't understand just how serious it is? Like Mike Farnworth said there, the people who are fighting this fire, they're putting their lives in danger as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we're seeing this year with the drought conditions and the amount of fuel in the area that's um, dried out and ready to burn, we're seeing very, very aggressive and volatile uh, fire behavior. So we're seeing rank four, rank five, an active continuous flame front that's moving through the grounds of the trees. And yesterday afternoon, we did see spotting ahead of the main fire, um, upwards of a kilometer ahead of, of the flame front. So it's, 
it's incredibly dangerous and it's comparable to any other natural disaster, a tornado or a hurricane. So um, to those people who think they can outsmart it, um, they, that they can't and they need to get that um, through their head and, and evacuate as, as soon as they can. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but are we seeing this happening more than perhaps we've seen in previous wildfire seasons or is it maybe more because we're seeing more wildfires? Um, it could be a mix of both. Um, from my from my experience, it, it does seem to be more prevalent this year. Uh, but again, it has it has happened in the past as well. All right, we're going to leave it there for today. But thanks so much for taking the time, Hannah Swift, Fire Information Officer with the BC Wildfire Service. Thanks for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Well, we were talking about this earlier on in the program. The Canada Border Services Agency asking travellers to be patient as some of its employees are staging a work-to-rule campaign. This is happening at border points and airports. There were some long lines at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Ontario, as well as the Blue Water Bridge in Sarnia earlier today. That as talks between the federal government and the Public Service Alliance of Canada's Customs and Immigration Union went all night long and we understand they are still continuing at this point. The Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses is urging the two sides to come to an agreement. The borders are going to start to slowly reopen to um, uh, fully vaccinated Americans on Monday and uh, you know there's a lot of businesses, tourism businesses that have been really hard hit by the pandemic who were looking forward to at least a little bit of uh, extra <laughs> Uh, I guess, activity coming into their business um, in the course of the next few weeks. All right, that was Corinne Pullman with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And now we are joined by Dave Earle, who is the president and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thanks for coming back on the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, are truckers concerned at all that this could lead to longer lineups at the borders? Well, Jill, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the free flow of goods and that efficient movement of goods is really key and critical for every Canadian. Uh, when you look at the numbers, I mean, they're staggering. I mean, we, we see about a third of a trillion dollars of American goods flowing north across our, our borders at all the various crossings. So, uh, you know, any time that we see a potential disruption, it, it's always a matter of concern. Uh, because truckers, as we know, and we've talked to you on the program before, they are essential workers. They've been crossing the border this whole time. Has it been pretty smooth throughout the pandemic? You know, it's been remarkably smooth. Uh, the work that every agency involved, from Customs and Border Patrol in the United States to CBSA in Canada, uh, all our members and carriers and the drivers that are doing the work, uh, being so focused on COVID safety protocols and plans, uh, it's been a real success story that we've been able to maintain a, a pretty smooth running of the supply chain across the border. And that as well, I know we talked earlier about vaccinations and making sure truckers were vaccinated. It seems like all of that has gone pretty well. It's gone very well. Uh, you know, Friends for Health uh, really stepped up at one point and actually ran a dedicated uh, truck driver vaccination clinic in, in an effort to uh, to be more available uh, you know, about a month or two ago in terms of uh, getting those first shots uh, in arms. So uh, there's been lots of success on that front as well. 
Uh, we heard from the union earlier today, and they're anticipating that with the easing of the restrictions for fully vaccinated Americans, we could see anywhere from a 10% to a 25% bump in border traffic and traffic coming into Canada. So even without job action, when we're talking about more questions, because they will be asking about vaccinations, looking at the Arrive Can app that people have, it seems like the crossing is going to probably take a bit longer anyway. Uh, Is there concern then from truckers that even without job action, as we see things start to reopen, it is going to mean that there will be more lineups? Sure, but one of the things that uh, CBSA and CBP both do is they operate dedicated commercial lanes at a variety uh, of border crossings. Uh, The challenge, of course, is going to be for them to staff uh, their entire crossing appropriately and trying to figure out, you know, what level of of traffic they're going to need and what level of officer staffing they're going to need. That's going to be a challenge, and we're just going to have to, I guess, work through it. Because do do we have an idea, or would you know if... When somebody is stopped, when a truck driver is stopped at a border crossing, I would imagine every minute is important and every minute that a a truck driver is stopped and is sitting is lost revenue. It is, but the the industry is really well equipped for contingencies and they they build in uh, contingencies and time allowances for border crossings into their route planning. And as long as the delays are transient, you know, so they, they come and go, it's not uncommon to see delays of an hour um, at various border crossings at different days of the week and at different times. But it's when it becomes regular, when it becomes prolonged, and we start seeing those delays climb into the two- and three-hour range, that it really starts to have an impact. Um, so we're just really hopeful that uh, both parties involved can come to an agreement. Uh, the union also talked a little bit about the fact that with the job action, their workers are, are mainly, all of them are essential, but we could see things like, a refusal to work overtime, and that could lead to some of the delays. Do truckers have the flexibility of going across at different times or readjusting their schedule to try and avoid the lineups? They do, but everything is governed within the hours of service regulations that apply to cross-border drivers and to every commercial driver uh, everywhere in North America. So you're only allowed to be active behind the wheel for a given period of time. Uh, There are different rotations and different schedules that you can use. But ultimately, you've got some flexibility, but it's not that you can just, you know, at the drop of a hat, say, well, I'll just go and wait four or five hours uh, until it clears. Um, There's flexibility and we're really good and adaptable. But, uh, you know, when things get long and more importantly, when they get long for a protracted period of time, uh, that's when things can start to be problematic. Right, because I guess if you miss that window or if you've been on the road for a certain amount of time, like you said, there's rules that you have to make sure you're logging and, and not breaking those. Absolutely. You're pulling over for a rest. You're pulling over for the day. Um, you know, and that's why, you know, overnight parking and truck parking is such an essential part of the supply chain and why route planning is so complicated. Uh, just trying to take into account all of these different uh, things that may come into play. Um, we're good uh, and I, I'm confident we can uh, we can certainly get through this in the short term. I mentioned off the top that we're hearing about some delays in border crossings at Windsor, Ontario, the border crossing as well in Sarnia. Are we in a better position in BC as far as, like you said, the dedicated commercial lanes or maybe because there's not as much traffic as we see at some of the other crossings? 
I think that second point's the important one, Jill. Um, you know, yeah, all the crossings have dedicated, I shouldn't say all, the vast majority of the big crossings have dedicated commercial lanes or different zones have dedicated commercial crossings. So um, CBSA is good at, uh, at doing that type of work. And uh, we're just don't have the same volume that we do uh, in the east. I mean, again, to put it in perspective, uh, Canada, well, the United States does more business with Canada across the Ambassador Bridge than they do with the entire nation of Japan. Um, It's a hugely important crossing, and uh, that's why the, the smooth flow of goods is so important for everybody. Wow, that's that's a lot of goods going back and forth across that bridge. It is just stunning. When you look at the numbers and how much actually moves, it is just absolutely stunning. And that's why we're just so very hopeful that uh, as we emerge from uh, the COVID pandemic and the late start coming back on, that uh, we, we can continue to provide that level of service and that smooth movement of goods that everybody relies on. Uh, Dave, just before I let you go, how are the members of the Trucking Association doing? I remember talking to you when the pandemic was still in its early days, and we were talking about the fact that a lot of truck drivers, they couldn't even access bathrooms that they'd come to depend on, and it was a huge issue. How are they doing now, so many months into it? You know, Jill, again, it's, it's a really remarkable success story for, for so long and in so many ways. Um, you know, the industry really wasn't thought about. It just wasn't acted on and we just didn't realize the importance of it and how fragile uh, that whole system was. And I'm, I'm just so heartened over the past year uh, to see the profile and the recognition that these drivers are getting and the support that they're getting. Uh, you know, from agencies, from members of the public, and just that general understanding that uh, they need our support, and uh, they're by and large, they're getting it. All right. Dave Earl, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Anytime at all. Thanks for being with us. Well, we don't normally do a whole segment when we're talking about one arrest, but I saw this story out of Delta, and I think it really resonates with a lot of people. And so many people have had things taken out of their yard, have had items stolen out of their vehicles. And this has to do with the arrest of what Delta police describe as a prolific Prowler. And joining me to talk more about this is Chris Lakoff, Public Affairs Coordinator with Delta Police. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Can you talk a little bit more about this, this prolific prowler? What was the background here? Yeah, so there have been a number of uh, instances in the Sunshine Hills neighborhood in North Delta in mid-July. And uh, in one instance, for example, um, the suspect was was uh, suspected of trespassing on several properties and then gained entry into one residence via an unlocked garage. So our officers uh, increased patrols in the area, uh, had a lookout, and uh, spotted um, him on August 3rd. Uh, arresting him without incident. So uh, he's facing a number of charges uh, that we'll be recommending, uh, including trespass by night and break and enter. And so this wasn't somebody who was just, say, walking by yards and out of opportunity grabbing things that happened to be there. He was going and trying to find ways and in at least one case, you think, getting into a home. Oh, yes, uh, a number of cases, yes. Uh, And uh, he's of no fixed address, and he is definitely known to police. Uh, So our officers actually do... keep track of uh, known offenders, uh, track their custody status. Uh, We share information with other jurisdictions when we believe people are traveling between jurisdictions, committing crimes of opportunity, honestly. And uh, we 
track these kind of things on a weekly basis so we can really uh, act on them as soon as possible because of course um, this is this is something that's really troubling when you have someone you know entering your property there's a huge sense of violation there mm-hmm. so do you have information then like you said this was happening in the Sunshine Hills area of Delta mm-hmm. do you think this person is responsible then for break-ins and, and robberies in other areas uh, at this time, uh, that's unknown. Uh, he's linked to a, a number of events in Delta. I'm not sure if there are links to other jurisdictions at this time. Some people, though, uh, definitely do uh, cross jurisdictions to commit these crimes. They'll come in uh, and they'll potentially hit, you know, um, 5, 10, 20 properties in one night. Uh, we had that happen in Beach Grove, um, another neighborhood in the Delta area, not that long ago. Uh, and this was uh, a series of break and enters on three streets, essentially, um, including people breaking into vehicles and then using garage door openers to access the garage. In this case, do you know if this person has previous charges or previous convictions? Uh, yeah, that's not something uh, we're going to be going into at this time. We just described them as known to police. All right. When you talk about the charges, so this is a person who uh, could be charged with uh, trespassing, break and enter, and theft. Realistically, mm-hmm. what kind of punishment are we looking at? Uh, well, that is up to the courts uh, and the judge. We don't like to predetermine these things, uh, but our officers do work to prepare, um, uh, you know, significant packages of information when these kind of um, uh, uh, files do go to court uh, to present the best uh, amount of evidence for the judge to consider. If someone's labeled a prolific offender, um, typically that does come with a little bit of a higher um, uh, consequence to it. Right. And even though you can't go into detail, just by by saying that and kind of reading between the lines, the fact that police are calling this person a prolific prowler, he is this person is known to police. Uh, People will hear that. And and it's frustrating. Like you said, it's such a feeling of violation when someone comes into your car, comes into your home and, and people will get the impression that here's somebody who, for whatever reason, gets a slap on the wrist and then is out there doing the exact same thing again. Yeah, and we do understand that frustration. And one of the things we do try to do is uh, ensure residents are notified as soon as possible when when we do see a crime trend. Um, but also, uh, we do ask that people try and take uh, preventative um, measures whenever they can at any time, because a lot of times these are crimes of opportunity. If you take away the opportunity, uh, and that eliminates the crime essentially. Things like you mentioned, so not leaving a garage door open or something like something like that in your vehicle. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, probably the top tip, honestly, is re- remembering to remove those valuables from your vehicle and getting into a routine of doing that. No matter if you park in your driveway or a secured underground garage or on the street, nothing to see, nothing to steal. Do you find do do prowlers like this or repeat uh, or people that, like you said, five, ten, twenty properties in one night? Do they pick certain areas because they're affluent, or do they have? Is there any rhyme or reason to why certain streets are chosen? Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, it really varies. Sometimes it's 
it's just uh, people looking for that opportunity, perhaps an area that's not as well lit or uh, they sense that maybe homeowners might not be there either during the day or there might be more people away on vacation there. Sometimes they have uh, family or associates in the area, so they spent time and gotten to know that area a little bit. It's got to be frustrating for police as well to, call, to to catch somebody like this and to be able to tell the public, we made an arrest, we found the person responsible for this string of break-ins or the person we believe responsible for mm-hmm. this string of break-ins only to have that person again out there doing it again in a, in a matter of time, maybe even a few months later. It, it does happen and honestly we, yeah, I mean th- there is a little bit of frustration there but our people, um, we've got analysts on staff as uh, most police, as I think believe all Metro Vancouver Police Departments have, and uh, they really do track uh, these offenders. So we make it a priority to know the custody status of them, and um, uh, we know their um, uh, typical methods of operation. Uh, then when something pops up again that's new, that fits a certain pattern that our officers and analysts have seen in the past, uh, they'll have uh, potentially a good indication of who could be responsible, and that'll help uh, guide the investigation in that case. Does it help people when, or sorry, help police when people, when residents have security cameras and have footage? Absolutely. That's actually a huge uh, assistance to us. And it's also um, very helpful when people, if they believe their vehicle, for example, might have been broken into but just rummaged through, maybe nothing was stolen or maybe uh, someone's entered their uh, carport or open garage. They see something, nothing was stolen or maybe even just something of minor value was stolen. Uh, They really need to report that to the police of jurisdiction because while they may have um, uh, been lucky in that instance, uh, a neighbor a few doors down or the street over uh, might have been a victim of a break-in that night. And so having that camera footage will help us uh, identify the suspect in that case and that will really help also when it comes to um, securing charges from the Crown. All right. Chris Lakoff, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, my next guest was one of a group of people that stepped in to help somebody who was drowning at Harrison Lake on BC Day. And Emily Treen joins me now to talk a bit more about that. Emily, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Hi. We don't have a ton of time. I'm not sure if you were listening to that, but we went a little bit long with the news conference with the health minister and Dr. Bonnie Henry. But I wanted to talk to you because it's such an important message about what drowning actually looks like. So what did you see and what happened on Harrison Lake? So I'll give you the beginning of the story because that really captures the the point of the whole thing and and that other people were involved. And so uh, we were on the beach just having a lunch and we we heard someone yelling something we didn't know what they were saying we uh, it was a guy we ended up we found out later his name was phil and he he was yelling help 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 but it still didn't dawn on us what was happening because we were looking out into the water we're beside this lagoon at at harrison lake um sorry (laughs) the the intro to that is we're at harrison lake we're at the lagoon and this this gentleman is in the middle of this lagoon and he looks completely fine and yet meanwhile this guy is yelling help and it wasn't until this kid ran past us on the phone yelling he's drowning he's drowning and pointing out to that same man 
who was sitting there seemingly just fine that we realized that he was in trouble. There was another guy who was with him at that time who had swam out to him. They were both hanging on to um, to a little dinghy at that point, or sorry, you know, like a little floaty. And and so we, I, I went in the water and swam to them. My boyfriend, luckily the guy who had been yelling help, told my boyfriend to go run and get the lifesaver. That was super critical. Um, and so my boyfriend went and, and got the lifesaver. He followed me into the water. Uh, everyone was able to hang on to the lifesaver. Everyone who had been helping on the shore beforehand that we we didn't see going on before we went in um, pulled us out of the water. So there were a few people, a gentleman named Phil uh, and, a, and a gentleman named Dave and his fiance. And everyone who was there really contributed to this. And, and the guy ended up being okay. But it was um, it was it was intense, and it, it's a, it's an important message that I think needs to be shared. And like you said, not like what we might picture when thinking about drowning, and really an eye opener as far as being right. aware of what's around you. Exactly, exactly. And so when we got to him, um, he wasn't moving, he wasn't verbalizing anything, he wasn't splashing. You know, all of those things that we would have been expecting had he really been in trouble. Um, none of that was happening. And so that was what was really surprising about it. And and prior to this, I knew that drowning was deceiving, or I thought I knew. I had been told and I had learned um, that it was quite silent and unassuming. Um, and it still took a really, really long time for us to, to figure out what was happening. Um, everything fell into place to that, you know, it ended up being okay in the end. But um, you know, we ended up all putting our lives at, at risk, too, without even really thinking about it, you know, and say not having that lifesaver, too, um, would have been, you know, a different a different story for sure. So there were just there were I, I know that drowning is such a common thing and it felt really important to just share one experience that kind of captures, you know, the, the takeaways from the whole thing. And, and if it can help one person, uh, then it'll be worth sharing this. All right. Well, it certainly does. And that's why we wanted to talk to you as well. And Emily, my apologies. We don't have more time to get into that. But I I think you got the main parts, uh, the main points across. So thank you so much for doing that and for joining us today. And have a great weekend. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.